many years ago when number sporting directors joined together under the, the, the leadership of like so Dan Ashworth, Richard Allen, Mike Rigg, and they engaged in a pilot with the FA Level 5 Technical Directors course. During that period, the course was delivered, the pilot was run, and uh, the guys that were on there decided something else needed to be done. And Mike Rigg kind of led the way and founded the Association of Sporting Directors. Very much then, we were about just connecting people, bringing people together, providing opportunities to network, to discuss, share ideas, something that they found most valuable in that group as they went through the, the first technical director's uh, course pilot with DFA. We've built on that ever since, and I've been very fortunate to be part of of the journey of the association. And I'll do my best to make sure we continue to serve the members and sporting directors to the best of our ability, not just the in England, but our international membership around the world. Our focus is around support and connecting and developing people, and we'll stay true to that. Since I've been involved, we've been supported extremely closely by the team at Huddle, and they've been key to helping us make very small steps in how we move the organisation forward as a startup. But at the same time, they've made incredibly huge steps with us to change the landscape of sport and directors to ensure there is a network, ensure that people are connected, ensure they have access to good people to be able to give them advice and help them support them on their professional and learning journeys. So we're excited about this panel. I'm really delighted to be joined by our guests and very thankful for Huddle as our value partner for organising this and, and putting it together. I hope you enjoy. Okay, we're going to kick today off talking about the role of the sporting director, technical leader or sports leader. Um, so Lucy, I'm going to come to you first, but what are the key responsibilities for a sporting director or leader in a sports organisation? And then also, what takes up most of your time um, day to day? Um, I think a big part of the role now has really become about like creating an identity for your club, um, both on the pitch and off the pitch. Um, really kind of about how you're, obviously, as well as your team's playing style um, and say what you're actually doing on the field. It's more about how that correlates, I think, to your your local community um, and how it re- relates to your environment and then how you want your club to be betrayed and how you want to represent your fans in that in that way. Um, so I think it's become very much about driving that and setting, setting and helping create that kind of football philosophy identity, um, but also about culture and, and environment. I think one of the key things is really about establishing within your, your organiza- organization an environment that everybody is driven into the same goals and same principles of how they work and how they communicate and how they interact. And it's about setting those standards, I think. Um, so I think that's become a really important role. I think one of the the most kind of time consuming parts or on that side is really about people management, um, kind of just whether that's coaching staff, players, um, other staff on the football operations side is just a significant amount of time is really spent kind of managing the staff and, that could be them coming to you with certain situations or questions or problems, um, or it could be you just going and investing time with them and with each individual department. Um, I think that's always been really important to me um, to kind of spend time with staff and just be a presence to them. Um, I think it can be quite motivating and inspiring to them when, you know, someone in a leadership position takes the time to just ask them about their day um, or check in and see things, how how things are going in their specific department um, and or just even inquire about a part of their role and kind of show that you're trying to increase and educate yourself as well in, in their kind of 
area of specialism. Um, so I think it's it's healthy to show that engagement. Um, and it's really just a, a core part of the role for me. Um, and obviously, that's aside from everything else you have going on, um, you know, the day to days of just managing the football staff. Um, and I think that, you know, the big perception of the job, this is that it's very much about scouting and recruitment. And I would love to say that you get as much time to spend on scouting and recruitment as everyone I think perceives you do but I think um, that becomes a a much smaller part of your day overall as you just focus on the general day-to-days of everything Um, um, and that's on the business and you know managing and working with the business upside as well so for me it's an all-encompassing kind of role now rather than being specific just to the football side I think it's more about really setting the standards and helping drive and progress the organization as a whole. Really interesting, Lucy, because if you looked at like the ev- evolution of the role, one of the key aspects is almost trying to, well, one of the key rationales was just a, a huge increase in the number of people. And you've alluded to the, the fact of, I guess, some of the challenges of trying to create this mystical alignment of what we're trying to achieve across all these different people, whilst also having a, a personal touch, which I guess becomes really challenging for a leader who's got to then keep looking ahead to the future, but also looking after the team at the same time. Alan, from your experience and, yep. and your role in particular, what, what, what's your take on it? I think I would agree, Dan, with everything that Lucy said there in terms of leading by example, um, setting the culture, the behaviours, the way in which the, the organisation is perceived, both internally and externally. I think for me, One of the key parts of my role is being the link between women's football as a standalone company within the company and the board of the club, keeping them abreast of, you know, performance, developments, um, all all aspects basically of women's football, all the way from the women's first team down to the academy. Um, In addition to to what Lucy said as well, Dan, for me... um, A big chunk of my role is sort of financial planning and management. Um, And then outside of that, which is obviously predominantly an internal task, is representing uh, the club on forums such as the FA's discussions currently around the future structure and governance of women's football. Um, So, uh, but... Yeah, like I say, I would agree with everything that that Lucy pointed out there um, and then just add a little bit of sort of uh, elements of my own role there from my experience over the last 18 months. No, brilliant, Alan. I think think across the panel, I've got like a a vast variety of experiences and I think bringing that personal context of, I guess, being able to look after some of those key relationships, especially um, that concern maybe communication and communication is such a key thing that I think we'll come back to in a little while. if we look at it more broadly and picking up on and maybe what you're talking to is obviously this over the past 20 years, we've seen a change, certainly in the people that own our football clubs and almost own much, much of sport uh, across the panel. The experience of that is, is, is incredible. <laughs> These guys obviously are coming in. They want to invest. They want to sustain their investment. They want a, a return on investment in some cases. Um, maybe, if it just came to you, Gus, how do you see the sporting director playing a role in um, in helping owners create that financial sustainability, but also a return on their investment too? I think it's um, interesting to note at this point, Dan, you know, the, the CIES Observatory recently released a report on the, the, the transfers, um, 
generated across the world in the last decade and um, certainly established that 9 billion euros were spent in the in the in the season 22 to 23 um which is the second highest on record since 19 the, the season 19 and 20 so ultimately there's an indication there that a lot of revenue income and expenditure is is spent on and received on on transfers so a lot of the percentage of the time is looked at sporting directors ensuring that the recruitment department is well resourced at the same time ensuring that the multidisciplinary team that exists within the club is equally well resourced to ensure that the players and the team um, are looked after on and off the pitch to ensure that we do get that return on investment, be it from the academy, be it from the first team, understanding what the business and the football model of the club is and aligning both um, and seeing what is feasible, what isn't feasible. Going back to the point that Lucy made earlier about the financial um, responsibility um, that that is in place now on sporting directors and the, the CEO as well, if there is a CEO that works in, in tandem with the, with the sporting director at the club and how they work together in, in partnership on those relationships uh, in ensuring that there's a lot less lost at the club and more generated in profits than there has been over the, over the, the last 20 years, if you like. Because 2020, 2003 was the year that the, the big businessmen who were extremely wealthy actually started purchasing football clubs on a worldwide basis. And a shift in the amount that's been invested across that 20 years has been immense. Um, to the point that it has to become sustainable, otherwise it'll collapse, especially when you've got the financial fair play rules as well that, that govern that particular area. Thank you, Gus. And Gareth, what would be your take? Um, yeah, so from my perspective, I think... Um, sporting directors or leaders within a, um, a football organization need to, need to have a broader context of the of the full business model. Um, so having a real awareness of, you know, if you, if you bring in players into a club, um, not just what the player's going to bring in terms of added value on the pitch, um, you know, is there a commercialization value to that, to that individual? Um, and is also, is there a residual value in terms of, you know, when they come to the end of the contract, having a real awareness of that? Um, so I, th I think that's that's really important that actually any decisions that you make in terms of recruitment, um, it's broader than just, you know, don't go in blinkered and think this is just about the football. Um, actually, there's going to be there's going to be further impacts. So I, I certainly think that's one for the sporting director. And then I think just having a real awareness of um, uh, some of the player markets and people markets that, that, that we can work in. Um, one around that commercialization value. So being aware of the community, how it's going to attract fans into your organisation, um, how it's going to attract broadcast to your organisation, um, and then the people markets as well. So if we think about um, sustainability in clubs, um, obviously uh, players hold the biggest value. But actually, if you, you know, if you look at Graham Potter moving from Brighton to, to Chelsea, actually there's a real value in 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 good staff, and I think that market will grow even further. Um, so actually making sure that while well, one, um, you recruit good staff um, and realise that there's a value to them, but also in terms of 
how you place development in your in, in your organization so again not just for the players i think that's almost a, a given but how do you how do you develop them staff um and and two if they're if the added value that they're bringing to your organization um is higher than the value of that person moving on actually how how do you sustain them in your organization as well I think it's really interesting the stuff that we've talked about in terms of like the functions of the role so far, but also some of the challenges. And I don't think we'll ever get away from the importance of recruitment of players and the the head coach in terms of getting that right. But it's really good to hear us talk about some of the broader benefits too, not just beyond the commercial, but also um, in terms of the other stakeholders, including the fans who we're seeing are taking a more of a prominent role in in sharing the the voice and their opinion. And it's something that we need to be respectful of and be better at engaging with and supporting if we want to make sure they fully understand the role moving forward. Fergal, if I come to you, because you've had some unique experiences in this and in the role now um, in no particular context, so maybe you can share a bit more on that too. Yeah, I I think for me, Dan, it's really important to understand what the goals of the owners are. And that's probably changed in the last 20 years. Like, is is the goal simply to spend money and win? Is the goal to... bring talent in cheap, develop it, send, sell it on? Or is the goal to build the club up and sell the club ultimately, create great value in the club? And, and I think it's only when you can understand that properly, you can have the correct conversations with the, with the owners around what investments you're encouraging, when, whether that's into players, whether that's into staff. Then once then you know what the goals are, it's managing the expectations and go back to, okay, we all want to bring talent in cheap and we all want to sell it on, but... We can't just have a team of, of kids. We have to have some experience. We have to have some leaders. So sometimes explaining that the investment might be in an older player who will develop the other players. Um, but I think it all comes back to me, to, for me, to understanding what the owners want at the beginning. And then a lot of the time is, is managing those expectations when it comes to squad planning, succession planning, et cetera. No, I love that, Fergal. And I think it's, I, I totally agree. It's not only getting that off the owners at the start, but it's also reminding of them as you go through that journey. And when you hit the first barrier, can you still hold your nerve and still stick to that original plan? So that's a a really fascinating contribution. Um, If we talk now, uh, we come to you, Lucy, I just want to ask about like what role does, we've seen this emerge and we've seen a big debate about uh, where does data play in in the role of a sporting director? How have you actually used it? And, you know, how does it feature in terms of importance to you as a, as a, as a technical leader? Yeah, well, I'm obviously a bit biased here because my background's very much in data and analysis where I came from. So, um, yeah, maybe I'm, I'm, I'm slightly biased, but for me, it's, it's absolutely huge. Um, I use it just on my day to day and, and across so many different areas and aspects of the club, um, and in the role. And I think obviously we talk about data, um, first and foremost, and how it can use us in, um, or help us in terms of like player scouting and recruitment. Um, and I use it at all stages of the recruitment process. So whether it's kind of that ident- identification stage and when you're kind of, you know, f- filtering through data to identify players and really reduce the number that you can potentially watch um, through to monitoring and then right up until player targeting and acquisition, where you probably use data in more depth at those later stages. Um but it's 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 also and I say I think that's the the common perception of just data in scouting and recruitment. But it's just used across the board in terms of management of your own roster. Um, I think assessing your goals, um, which Fergal just alluded to there, in terms of when you set 
set goals and expectations with ownership, how you can use data to kind of continually assess those, um, but also then use that to to plan for future um, and see if you're in alignment with your goals, but also then re-goal set um, based off that and look forward. Um, But also then in a day-to-day sense, just when I work with every head of department, everything comes back to to, to data and, and looking at how we are like really assessing our own decision and uh, our decision making and our policies like with regards to with regards to training loads and periodization for example um rehab rehabilitation processes like i think we can look at data and see okay like for example data on our on our injuries um and are we getting too many soft t- soft tissue muscle injuries and if so <clears throat> Is that in relation to our train loads and our, our periodization? Is it in relation to our rehabilita- rehabilitation techniques? Um, so I've really used it across the spectrum. So just try and, I think, just keep us on track with what our objectives and goals are, but to keep us continually assessing ourselves as well internally. Yeah, what, what, I've, what I feel from what you just said, Lucia, is about not being driven by it, but it's actually just enriching a conversation that we've been having for, for decades, but the data brings something totally new, a different level of reliability and credibility to the discussion and raises more questions and probably to move it on and take it to a different level. A hundred percent. You've just made a really great point, which is that for me, data never gives you the answers. It gives you questions and it's the questions that it, it raises where which then drives conversation and they're the best conversations when you get that back and forth and and you're driven to it because of data it's like okay so why are we seeing that now things start to kind of come out and for me that's that's almost been my best use of data when it's just been used to to really point us in new directions that maybe we wouldn't have looked at and drive discussion for those reasons perfect and Gus you You've been fortunate to work within a member association that's done incredibly well, um, and also within a very competitive, one of the most competitive leagues in the world within the within a, a championship club. So, what would be your take in terms of the role of data? I think what you touched on there, both of you, um, provides me with a nice little segue into the into enhancing the conversation around the check and challenges that data provided and still does provide, it generates those questions. Um, one area, for example, would have been the the presentation of a player and you're looking for a certain type of player, you're looking for a player who makes those runs behind and you're fully aware that this particular player can make those runs behind because you've seen him across the last two years in his parents' club playing that forward role, making those runs behind. And you know that his data points and data scores are, are, are significantly high in that particular area of his game. Then all of a sudden he makes a move into a loan club and it generates interest because he's available. You follow up that player, you bring back the data and suddenly you identify that his data points and scores are very low for making runs behind. Now it's having inquisitive people who deal within recruitment to deal with the data, have an inquisitive manager that leads itself to those questions, if you like. You could allow the data to just go by and, and nobody were touching it, but you need people who obviously are inquisitive and curious about what it's feeding back. And in this particular example, looking at a player who all of a sudden his data points are low, 
We know that that's incorrect. We question it. And it comes back to the style of play of the team that he's in. So all of a sudden, he's gone to a team that on loan, changes his style of play. He finds it very difficult to adapt. But we know if he was to come into our environment, his data points and scores would go through the roof again because the style of play would be more attractive to his, his attributes and his strengths. So you've got to check and challenge. And as Lucy said, utilize it along the journey. Do those deep dives into the into the into the metrics, into the points, um, to the points where you're you're selling the player to the to the manager. And obviously, ultimately, it's a different set of lens that provide you with an informed decision at the end. Brilliant, Gus. Uh, really well described there, and I like that. Fergal talked about it before in terms of like, okay, success. What what is it before we start looking at it? But Bringing that back, what does it look like to use? And Alan, if it, if it come to you, in terms of creating a successful football club and taking into account, like that might be whatever the owner wants and whatever that's decided by the, the governance of the organisation, what does it look like to you? And what are the main things that you consider we need to get right to achieve that success? I think, Dan, for, for me, my uh, opinion, personal opinion is that uh, everything begins with hard work. If t- in terms of building blocks, if you've not got that hard work, determination, I don't think it's going to get anywhere. I think to pick up on a point you made just in the intro there, working towards realistic, agreed objectives is a really key point because it's all very well to have aspirational objectives. But what for, in order for the, um, the success within the team to feel like it's achievable, you've got to be working towards agreed objectives that are realistic. I think the other thing that I would mention is the the synergy between the team on the pitch and the synergy with the team off the pitch is another key ingredient for me. And, and those would be things like trust, reliability and confidence in each other. No, love that. And Gareth, what would be your take? Yeah, so um, I, I think it's really important that that bit at the start, you know, where you say in a really clear understanding of what success looks like. Um, for me, that should be the first per- the first question you ask when you know, even at interview stage, having a really good understanding of of what success looks like, um, and then understanding what your start point is. So where are we currently at? So actually, spend some time researching, understanding where the club's currently at, so that you know what. Um, what that full journey is going to look like. Um, So you understand what phase that you're actually starting in Um, and then having an outcome driven approach. So make, making sure that you actually align um, uh, people's roles and responsibilities and departments roles and responsibilities to the objectives that you are trying to meet. And for me, that's the difference between sort of high performance and high performing. So the high performing bit is that you've got this outcome driven approach and you are seeing some tangible outcomes coming coming through um but then also being really transparent about it as well so not just understanding the contribution that you make or your department makes to those objectives understanding what other people's roles and responsibilities are as well so that you know you you can check and challenge um you know how you're going to achieve something um if something's been um if a task's been completed or something that's required for an element of your role um you know you, you understand the mechanisms within um the strategic plan to, to be able to achieve them. Um, so I think that's that, that that's really important. So things like having transparency around um, 
the game model and who's responsible for which areas of the game model, um, as well as the strategic plan. No, love that, Gareth. Fergal, is anything that you'd add to that? Um, no, no, just I, I put them into four four blocks, really, uh, but very similar to what Alan and, and Gareth have said. Like my first is vision. Go back to understanding what you're trying to achieve. Um, and, and what Alan said, is it achievable as well? There's no point in having a, a vision that is absolutely not achievable, the resources that you have. Then developing the strategy. So what? how, how are we going to achieve that vision? What are the values that we insist on right throughout the club and, and live in those values? And that starts from the top. Um, and then the people. We bring the people in that can deliver the strategy, that can lead by those values and, and can complete the tasks that, that are required to achieve our vision. Those are sort of the four areas that I put it into. I think one of the things that like that, that stands out from my experience, getting to experience second and different aspects of the football industry through you guys, is that one of the key things that has come out now is everything is led by the way you're going to play, by your purpose. So what are you, what is the purpose and how does that impact how you're going to play, what the game model is, and how that influences all the other decisions that uh, spin out across multidisciplinary teams, influence recruitment, and so on. If we come to to you, Gus, um, one of these observations is around the need for clarity around playing style. Style. Why is that so important? And what does that mean? What has that meant to you at like either a club or a, a member association perspective? I think it's imperative that you do have a a playing style. Um, which enables you to have an identity, an identity that resonates with the the supporting base of that club or that organisation or that country, if you like, that federation. Um, it's got to reflect the sort of cultural environments that the, the club, the organisation uh, are located within, if you like, the community, the, the values that the people in that community, in that country, behold and live by as Fergal said earlier on a, on a daily basis and that's true too as well not only live by and that then has manifested itself in, in, obviously into a, a, a type of player that you're going to bring into a, into the club so you have your game model as Gareth alluded to and out of the game model you can extract a profile for the type of player that you require so there'll be principles within that game model that will be sitting in there that, again, that you um, adhere to and live and live by. And those principles are the game principles that apply themselves across any formation that you deploy. But the style of play doesn't change. The formation might change, but the style of play doesn't change. And the, fan, the fans can resonate with that. That is a, a clear philosophy. It does then, as I alluded to earlier, lend itself to being a more specific, targeted, driven approach in terms of recruitment, in terms of the type of player that you're looking to bring in. The, the manager, and this is the key thing, really, it's about consultation across that multidisciplinary team, the director of football, the owners, the, the, the head coach, stroke manager, head of performance, all of these people having um, an opportunity to put forward an input that enables us to build up game model and, and pull out player profiles and to have a style of play that will remain at the club long after the manager has gone. So it's not necessarily about the, the head coach or the manager implementing a style of play that suits him. 
I think it would have been a, an agreed decision prior to the to the head coach, the manager coming in. This is the way we're looking to play, and they will have identified. Going back to Gareth's point earlier on head coaches and managers, they'll identify because that's highly on the agenda now. Recruiting head coaches and building a long list and short list of head coaches. They'll have identified the person who will align himself with what the club wants in terms of a style of play, and that's where the marriage really, you know, has has a, a strong foundation for the future. So you can see there's clubs out there already who've who've employed head coaches, Swansea. Been one of prominence really where they've employed a head coach um, to to continue the style of play that they've implemented at the club. So from a national and and the club perspective, I've experienced two sets of similar supporters who are passionate about their club, their country, who are driven by seeing players working hard ultimately on the pitch, and that they provide the the supports and the the community that they represent with an identity. And that other clubs and other countries will see, yeah, he's a Welsh player or, yeah, he's a player from Blackburn or he's the type of player that would suit Blackburn or he's the type of player that would go far in the Welsh system. Brilliant, Gus. I like the idea of obviously having a, a club where you're doing things or a, a, a regional embedded identity, you know, driven where you're doing things, but also finding a head coach who can not come in and not not just align with that, but also add value and expand and innovate that to to take it onto a new level and add genuine value and legacy to a club. Lucy, you've experienced out in the in the US. What would be your reflections on that? Yeah, Gus hit the nail on the head with so much of that there. Um and it is so funny because it, it it feels so distinct in MLS from market to market because I look at somewhere like Atlanta where we had such a, a unique market in terms of the and Gus alluded to it, that the culture and the environment of people who live in Atlanta, what jobs they do, um, the kind of cultural background of people. And that really drove our playing style to a more kind of Latino, South American, free-flowing, kind of end-to-end game, all fun, like very entertaining. Whereas you look at, you look at, and I spoke to the guys at Minnesota, um, who, you know, Minnesota, Minnesota is a is a cold, cold, hard, steely kind of industrial city um, with a lot of industrial workers and their demand, the what the fans want to see from their players is is what they do every day is about being hard and being kind of gritty and determined and and I've spoke to so many different um GMs at the different clubs and everyone was unique in terms of their their local environment their culture and how that impacted what they were trying to do then from a strategic point of view on you know as an organization and on the pitch um you know LAFC was completely unique to Atlanta, even though we both wanted to play entertaining and attractive football, obviously, their market was very much driven by, for example, like the need to have, it's LA, the need to have a superstar, like, for example. So, um, you know, that dictated things in terms of their roster build and management. But I think just to to kind of piggyback of what Gus said as well, I think the importance of it is is longevity, what it allows you to do is to be consistent over a period of time. And when you actually have a, a principle of play, which isn't reflective of the head coach, when you change head coach, then you're able to be more consistent and you suddenly don't have to change 
a whole roster because you've changed and brought in a head coach who has a completely different style of play um, and who needs a completely different kind of set of players. And so I think it allows you as a club to have kind of better longevity and better kind of roster management and planning over a period of time as well. Um, but yeah, it's 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 something which I think is so apparent in, in MLS because each each culture and each city is just so unique. Um, and you really see it in, in the roster build-ups and the roster strategies of clubs. It's, it's been quite fascinating for me to actually speak to every individual GM and see what their, their real specific was in terms of their climate. No, Dan, really- do you mind if I jump in? Um, yeah, so I, I just wanted to sort of touch upon the um, uh, Stoke City in the Premier League. Um, and there was a there was a sort of uh, a transitional phase at, at Stoke where they went from this um, what everyone sort of recognised as a you know a long ball club to to being quite quite attractive in Marcus era. We brought in a number of players um, that um, you know the, the, the sort of game model changed. However, what what didn't change? They had sort of like four core values really that um, that were sort of fundamental to the club, and what it was. Um, Outrun, outcompete, outplay, and outthink. Now, the the outplay and outthink bits were part of the new era that came in, um, but the bits that were completely unacceptable if they didn't if they weren't seen on a match day were the out the outrun and outcompete because that was reflective of the community in Stoke on Trent, like hardworking local people. We had the biggest fan base within ten mile radius of as a, of, the, of the football club. Um, so I think I think that bit's really really important because it does it resonates with 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 the supporters group. Um, so and you can recognise that in terms of what is success. So although you want to you, you know you want to finish in the top half of the Premier League, um, actually success for us was also being reflective of our local community. Um, and those two core values sort of spoke val- volumes for us, and we and, the, and we recognised that when we were developing players as well. No, great point, Gareth. And I think across those points so far, one thing is clear is that continually within the industry, we're seeing change internally within organisations that are evolving over time and then across the industry. What comes with change is that like people change. And I know we've all been part of it in, in, in different ways. When you uh, arrive at an organisation for the first time, and I'll come to you with this one first, Fergal, is what actions are you taking to create higher chances of success? Really interesting question for me, Dan, because if you had asked me this 12 months ago, my answer would be completely different. So I I joined Standard Liège nine months ago. And just before I arrived, the question was, I had a presentation ready. And the question was, will I do it on the first day? Will I do it on the second day? So I arrived beginning of August. The first time I did a presentation to staff was the end of December. Right. So my answer is, you have to assess the environment. You have to understand really quickly What's going on? What do the staff need? What do they understand? Um, where where are the problems? And I realized within a very, very short space of time that they didn't need a presentation. They didn't need me sitting up there making false promises, making an assessment of a club that I really didn't know. So, so assessing the environment is really, really important. Then make people believe in your goals, make people believe in you, make them believe that we can we we can achieve success here, whatever we define success as. And then probably the third point for me is action. There comes a point in time, not too shortly after you've arrived, that they will require action. 
whether that is bringing new staff in, removing players, bringing players in, but they need to see action. So we need less talking and and and, and let's get something done. So that's sort of my assessment of my period here. That's really important, Fergal, because I think that sometimes we we sit on courses, we read books, and it says it should look like this, it should look like that, and in reality, you need to trust you, yourself too and take your experience and what you learn and try and blend that together to be like a, a top pra- practitioner, a top leader. Gareth, you, you've experienced this maybe um, in a number of different contexts, but also with FIFA trying to go out to organisations to support them to be more successful too. What would be your reflections on that? Yeah, so very similar to be honest um i think i think it's really important that you you take your time observe understand the the context and culture that that you're going into um because it's it's quite easily it's quite easy to have some uh clear ideas about what you want to do or how you're going to stamp your authority or actually something that you experienced previously you could bring that um and and try and implement it within a particular organization um, so yeah, I think taking your time, uh, observe and understand, um, and 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 that's hard work. So a lot of people think. I, I remember Dan Ashworth talking about going into Brighton, and actually he said, you know, the sort of first three to six months, he was just observing uh, and going and making sure that he understood. Um, I, but that's that's hard work doing that. You know, really understanding the context of where you are, um, and recognizing the value of people the contribution that they, they that they, they're currently making what they could make um you know and then also understanding the context of your role so you can't be the same leader in one organization as you are in another yeah you'll bring you know you'll bring certain elements but understanding where you're going to add some value as well i think is is really important um and what are the priorities for you in that particular moment um and as soon as you've obviously you've been through that phase um i think as part of that you've got to you've got to take time to build relationships with people the relationships piece is so so important um and that's that's every every tier of the organization so um you're going to have to obviously manage up manage down manage sideways (laughs) so building those relationships is, is is absolutely key um and fergal talked about you know um uh, telling a story and then uh, now getting dirty. Now, actually, to get dirty, you you know you've got to know right who's on the bus with you and uh, who, who's going to do those those certain jobs. So really, sort of understanding that, I think um, I think is cool. No, oh, brilliant. And Alan, I've come to you because I know you've worked in a different clubs in the top level of the game with different structures and different ways of leadership. And also you've moved roles within those organisations too. So it'd be good to get your perspective on that. Thanks, Dan. I think I'd agree with everything that's been said before. I'd also link it back to one of the previous questions about building blocks. Um, when going into an organisation for the first time, for, from my perspective, it's really important to demonstrate what I described as my key building block in terms of hard work. So by demonstrating to your colleagues, your counterparts, the people around you that you're there and you're going to work relentlessly as much as you possibly can to try and help them to get solutions or um, ideas, methods of working, you know, working with the people around you to see are there any opportunities for quick wins, anything that we can deal with 
in a in a swift manner, almost like sprint tasks, if you like. And then outside of that, taking on one of the points from before as well, what are the longer term challenges that we really need to get our teeth stuck into to try and help? So, yeah, again, linking it back, hard work, taking time to assess the situation, opportunities for quick wins, and what are the more meaty challenges that we need to get our teeth into to improve the situation? Brilliant. Thank you, Alan. Guys, just to pause a sec, just as we go into these next questions, I'm just conscious of time as we move through. So probably about halfway through now. So we should be all right. But if we just focus the, the points, that'll be fine too. To make, I want to make sure we get as much of your voices as possible across. Is that okay? Well done. Okay, so part of going into a, a, a new new a new club, um, or being at a club is trying to centralise all the different departments and also the club data to inform decision making. Lucy, if we come to you, how do you and you've you've been part of this? How do you go about doing that? And what have you experienced when trying to implement that approach? Yeah, I think um, I think obviously we look to build platforms internally a lot now to pull everything into one place and really centralise it. Um, and I think we're now entering a world of you know hiring data engineers and data scientists to can really be a part of building that. Um, but for me, it's it the access is is and centralizing it is just the start. The most important thing is having open sharing and communication channels across departments so that you're actually using the data um, and and using it in a meaningful way. Um, you know, Gus alluded to it earlier. We need to question and challenge each other's data across departments so that we're driving conversation from it. Um, and I think that's the most important thing. I think, say, making the data across departments accessible to different departments, um, but then bringing everybody together in an open space to actually talk about it. Um, and it's not just sitting there nicely on a platform and we were, oh, yeah, I, oh, yeah, I did look at that, but I didn't kind of say anything. Um, it's about bringing everyone together so that they can actually can, can communicate about it. So that that for me is the most important thing. And I think you know, going forward, it's something that, you know, we really need to to drive um, as we as we become more kind of, not reliant, but as we become more kind of intense with our use of data across multiple platforms. Brilliant. And, and Gus, what is your take? I think it's important that the multidisciplinary team has a, a great understanding initially of why and what they want from the, from the, the data uh, and then utilising the people who've got the skills, such as the data engineers that uh, Lucy mentioned there, to put in a fit-for-purpose bespoke platform that can ingest information and can throw out on the other end uh, relevant data that sits within different departments that what required initially. Um, that's the key thing, really, building it that it's purposely made for you and nobody else. Uh, uh, no, brilliant. I think what I... What I, I'm taking from that is that one, we it's evolving. I mean, we've got more access to data, but the the most important thing is that we've got ways of engaging with it and facilitating its use and making it part of like almost our bread and butter day to day practice. Is that we use this software, we discuss what we find, we ask questions, and we make it part of how we we manage. You both mentioned multidisciplinary teams, and it's come up a couple of times now. We'll come back to you, Lucy. It's like, what does it what does it mean to you? And also, maybe what are some of the the departments that exist within a multidisciplinary team? 
Um, yeah, I mean, Gus touched on this a lot when he was speaking about the style of play. Um, you know, it includes ownership, um, all the football operations staff, your general manager, technical director, the head coach, um, his coach, his, her coaching staff, um, the technical staff within that, whether it's your data scientist and then data engineers or your sports scientists, your athletic trainers. Um, and it's really about aligning and having mutually agreed upon visions, targets, goals, um, and standards and values across those departments. Um, and I think that message always has to, it starts from ownership and it it starts from the supporting director, but it has to filter down across those departments. Um, and I think you have to really build relationships across departments, create understanding of roles and then accountability amongst staff as well for, say, for their impact and their their role in, in the bigger picture. Um, but for me, uh, as well as as well as all those departments, it's it's really important that we include the business operations side when we're talking about the team. Um, I think it's so important to have alignment across the soccer ops and business ops side. And I think to engage with staff on the business operations side and align them with the football side is so important. Um, I think historically, maybe they've been seen as two kind of distinct entities in a club, like often you know, the, the business ops would be based at the stadium and the soccer ops or the football ops would all be based at the training ground and they never see each other. Um, and I think, you know, being a multidisciplinary team should include the business operations side of things as well, because ultimately it's it's making sure that you're all aligned with everything. And, and that includes your media and how you're talking in the press and the kind of sponsorship deals you want to get and the partners you want to bring in and how they align with your your football vision and your football strategy. Um, so I think for me, that's what a, a multidisciplinary team includes as well. No, brilliant. Very comprehensive. If, if I could pick up on that, Dan, just to expand a little bit further, agreeing with Lucy's points, I, in my role, consider myself to have two MDTs. One which includes technical staff, analysis, human performance, medical recruitment, but then another MDT connected, but maybe not as connected as they could be, but around an MDT on the business operations side, as Lucy says, which would include colleagues such as legal, finance, HR, sales, marketing. So like a business-focused MDT and a sport-focused MDT. So, yeah, just thought that might be a, an interesting point to add. No, it definitely is. And I, I think when I talk about that with um, teaching on a, a sport business course and also people from performance, it's trying to realise that and bring that together. So it's a great point, Alan. Uh, Fergal, from your perspective, sitting in a – and having sat in two um, – clubs that are part of multi-club setups what does that mean for you at a club but also broader club perspective yeah I, I think I agree with what what Lucy and Alan have said there um particularly with Alan saying there's different types of MDTs I get that exactly when I, re- when I listen to the question first I'm thinking more about the player development and the sports scientists the physios the analysts everything around him um but ultimately it doesn't matter what MDT you're in it's about communication with everyone it's about clear goals with everyone in there they understand the goals of the various departments um and it's about having the right people in there i always say when when i hold an mdt around a player i am not an expert in any of the fields okay so so you have to give simple instructions the sports scientist right the players have to come back or develop to be faster fitter stronger than what they come into our club that's your goal how you do that 
that's up to you because that's your areas of expertise. So I, I think it's really important that the people know what your goal is, but then we give them accountability and 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 reassurance that we believe in their in their skills um, and and in how they're going to develop the players. But we need we need to give everyone um, reassurance that we believe in them. But comes back to the goals too. Do they understand the goals? Brilliant. Should I take this to Gareth and Gus? Is there any other roles that you'd identify that we haven't mentioned yet that sit within multidisciplinary te- teams? Yeah, I think I think you can look at it slightly differently as well, and and just thinking about high functioning teams. So rather than the actual specific role, whether it be player recruitment or performance analysis, you can see how someone functions within the team. So I I know that some of my staff will 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 work independently, and actually, you know, although they're part of a multidisciplinary team, they're quite effective in their role. So that's their role contribution. Um, so an understanding, right, who are the leaders within the team? So we were going to really drive some of the actions that you require. Um, and, and who are some of the people that may deliver some of the, the messages around um, the objectives and the plans that you're working towards? Um, so probably looking at the roles slightly differently in terms of a high functioning team and the contribution that individuals make as well, having a really good understanding of that. I think also, Gareth, um, Dan, and the panel, it's it's a role that not many people take much notice of, but the role that's becoming prominent in, in, in clubs now or playing a prominent part in some more so than others is the player welfare officer. And we spoke about relationships earlier on and, and we understand how valuable relations, relationships are across football, across society in general. And the experience that I've encountered and observed is the, the strength of the relationship that the player welfare officer has with the player. And every little bit of information that nobody else wants to hear or know about, the player welfare officer will have access to that information how he's feeling, how they're feeling, how she's feeling. They'll, they'll be aware of everything and anything that's going on in that person's life on a holistic basis. And I think it's important in an MDT ta- uh, team to sort of be inclusive of that particular person, that role, so that we get an understanding of the person as opposed to the player as well that we're dealing with and what can be affecting that particular player, that person in their life outside of the of the, of the game itself. And ultimately, if we, we speak about it, it, everybody having the same goal, which is to ensure that the player is at the, the centre of our vision and that the club is moving forward, then I think it's it, it, it's obvious that we have to have that close connection with the player through the player welfare officer, if you like, if they feel comfortable with sharing their information with the player welfare officer. Gus, I think it's a really good, a really good point. Um, you know, we spoke about relationships earlier. Um, just understanding where some of the key messages come from around the environment that you've created. Um, so, uh, you know, don't just think of, about your multidisciplinary team. Um, think about it in the wider context of of, of the club. So, uh, you know, some of your key messages will come from the physiotherapist because they get a lot of one-to-one time with with individuals when they, when when they're getting treatment. Uh, but also you get you get other people around the building that access the, the training area um, that, that notice things um, or will notice conversations or notice something that's not quite right. So I think having those broader relationships uh, and being open to 
to, to feedback and communicating effectively with, with, with everybody. I think it's hugely important. Building, building on from that, because Fergal mentioned some, something before about almost not being an expert in the MDTs, but also being able to trust and empower people to make the decisions. And anytime you do something like that, a physiotherapist's intervention may differ greatly from a sports scientist intervention to someone from player welfare, to someone sitting with the data in front of them and whatnot. So if I come to you, Lucy, how do you go about managing conflict across a group of empowered experts and how have you experienced that? How you how have you dealt with that? Uh, yeah, I think for me, open communication first and foremost is key and not communication to start communication during the conflict. It's about actually making sure that good lines of and good channels of communication are in place well in advance of that. Um, because I think through that, you build trust, respect across departments, which then during a time of conflict can really help. Um, because you've already got that pre-established kind of level of respect for each other. Um, I think if you if you go into a conflict trying to go right, we need to communicate better, then you're already you're already chasing your tail. Um, but I think you know whenever you're dealing with conflict, try and take the emotion out of it um, and just look at it with with an from an objective standpoint. Um, I think being respectful of everybody's different opinion in that is is really important because say different people have different agendas or different perspectives just based on their their area of expertise. And I think just recognizing those um, is really important. But yeah, always, always take, try and take a neutral standpoint and take any emotion out of it and deal with it objectively. Love that, Lucy. And, and Gus? I think, you know, com- complex discussions are going to be undertaken in, in that room, if you like. And we we all understand that we've got good people in the room who are experts. Ultimately, the head coach or the manager will always want the players on the pitch um, as as much opportunity as he can to get those players on the pitch. He'll get them on the pitch. But that understanding that everybody has in the room about the player being at the core of everything, the the value that the player puts into the team, which is why the manager wants him on the pitch or her on the pitch, it's that mutual appreciation that ultimately, if we're going to put a player out on the pitch for a, a two-game um, period and suffer long-term, then it, it's of undervalues the value the value that we've got in place at the club, at the organisation, and it undervalues what we uh, feel for the player who's at the centre of all this, and ultimately those educated experts within the room will come to the to the conclusion because they all believe in the same mission and they will not want to damage or hamper it. So we've got that on our side and having an understanding of that because the biggest person to try and convince that it ain't happening would be the head coach and the manager. So collectively, we've, we've got to share our knowledge and understanding what the consequences would appear like if we were to undertake this action if it's one that's been accelerated and doesn't need to be, um, can we introduce an academy player into the frame to to, uh, take the place of this particular player? Again, once we get that academy player on the pitch, we're we're introducing game time for him. We're increasing his value, her value on the pitch. Again, there's a a number of things that need to be considered that can sort of um, resolve the situation amicably, I think. 
Really interesting, Gus, because even hearing you talk about that, I'm talking, I'm thinking about Fergal. You've got to know your purpose. Gareth, you've got to have a strategy and plan. And then it informs how you get the head coach. Otherwise, you've got the wrong guy coming into, into that room. And that's where if there can be problems and there isn't going to be a shared metal vision, a shared philosophy of how you're going to achieve what you need to achieve. But with the right people, with the right purpose and vision shared, communicated, then that can be a reasonable, professional, rational discussion. Maybe if I just spin it, where have you, maybe if I come to you, Fergal, first, is could you share an example of where you've leveraged a multidisciplinary team and it's worked well? Yeah, well, we had an example of a player at City, actually, who was constantly injured. And there was always that pressure to get him fit, get him fit for matches, need to be back for the weekend. Um, and it wasn't until we got everyone into the into the one room and discussed the problem openly, like like has been said. But it comes back to what's the goal? Okay, the goal is to get him onto the pitch on a regular basis so he doesn't keep breaking down. I think your job then as, as the leader of that is, is to ask the right questions and ultimately, to, if there is conflict, to, to resolve that conflict or come to a decision. But in terms of this player's case, it was the decision, a very brave decision, was actually to take him off the pitch for a four-month period, completely off the pitch. Now, you can imagine what the coaches thought about that. Um, you imagine what the player thought about that, but then it was just communicating the strategy. There was regular updates to the players and the staff on on how that was progressing. And I think because we had buy-in from the beginning, um, it worked extremely well. And actually the outcome on that particular player was was tremendous and he hasn't had a problem since. But it was the first time we saw everyone aligned on what we were doing. And and to pick up on some of the points that were made, made earlier, you have to think really carefully who is in that MDT, who is the one with the information, who is the one that really understands the problem of the player. For example, a, play, a player turns up late for training Straight away, he's got a bad attitude. He doesn't care. Right? He, he's lazy. But has anyone asked the question, what's going on at home? Why is he late? What are the issues here? Before we make the judgment, and sometimes it's it's the minibus driver. Sometimes it's, it's the kit man or kit lady. So we've got to think, who is who is that? I, I described as the account manager. Who's the person in the club that's closest to that player? And it might not be who you think it is. But it's really important that we understand the person through that player without without breaking any confidentiality pieces. Gareth, yeah, I think um, I think Virgil's right in terms of making sure there's alignment between um, between all of the staff. Um, I I always think about the um, the story of uh, JFK doing a tour around uh, NASA in 1962, and they asked the janitor what his job is. And his job is to put people on the moon. And uh, so effectively, everyone in that organization is aligned to that. Your job is to put people on, on the moon. And um, so both at Stoke and Leicester, um, I, I always sort of try to try and define that. So what is it? And it's not it's not your vision, because actually that your vision could be in sort of seven to 10 years time. And, and the turnover rate of staff, that they might not be here for the vision. So that doesn't align people. So... Um, I always try and put some sort of performance model together um, that's like a visual for people uh, and, and and call it a central aim. So what is it that we're trying to achieve? So that could be, um, okay, you're not trying to put uh, people on the moon, you're trying to put players on the pitch. Um, and that could be a young player. Um, you could be the person that works in the canteen and feeds them food. So nutrition is really important. It could be that actually you're the medical staff and we need to make sure we get players on the pitch, but making sure that we've got a central aim 
and everybody's aligned to that and they understand what that is, I think that's when you then get that buy-in and you start to have that sort of multidisciplinary environment where it actually starts to merge together. Brilliant. And Alan, how would you add to that? I think pick, picking up on, on all of those points, I think linking it back to the, the, the point that I made about the MDTs not necessarily just being sport focused. So this season, with regards to our non-sporting MDT, we've had a really um, collaborative approach to formalising and improving the um, player acquisition process and the sort of governance around that from from a, a women's football perspective. And so that would be an example from a non-sport MDT within a sporting environment that we've utilised this season to make documented improvements around sort of a and a really important process within the business. No, brilliant. Thank you. Thank you, Alan. Thanks for those contributions. So, Alan, what forms of reporting, dashboards and metrics do you use to measure performance across these different departments and, in your case, these two multidisciplinary teams that you're talking about? Yeah, so from a football perspective, we use monday.com. Um, to monitor our uh, where we're at with regards to our football strategy. We also use um, bespoke uh, board reporting, uh, as I mentioned, as, as one of my key responsibilities was keeping the board informed as to where we're at. So, yeah, from a football perspective, monday.com. From a board reporting perspective, a bespoke template that we use internally. And then for non-football dashboards, such as ticket sales for upcoming games, we use a platform called Grow. Okay, brilliant. Thank you. And what about you, Lucy? Yeah, I'll touch on it more probably just from the, the football side. Um, I mean, the platforms we use are various and obviously specific to to each department. Um, and, you know, that's that's um, some of them are league mandated, um, but we're using everything now in terms of the, the typical data dashboards, tableaus, um, Power BI's to really kind of pull everything together and do our our data analysis and, and communication of that. So I think those are the two the two key ones when it comes to that later stages of actually visualization of data. And is that is that the one of the best in terms of trying to bring together the the information for these different stakeholders in your teams? And are, are they all using the same platform or are they feeding into this one central one from their own perspective? For for me, um, and you know, we were we were starting to dig into this really at DC. It's all about building out your own internal platforms, and as much as you're using your Power BIs or your Tableaus to within sub departments create presentations, I think when it actually gets to that higher level of um, of presenting to ownership, it's more about pulling all that information together um, and presenting it more probably more in a kind of report format i personally prefer to have the kind of more interactive dashboards like things like tableau which allow me as a user to manipulate the data as i need to and that's that's really because the the question is never the same like every day you you have a different question of of your data pool and your data set and i don't want to have to keep asking my analyst or my head athletic trainer or my sports scientist oh can can you run this can you run that I like to have that at my fingertips so that if ownership has a question, then I can present it to them as quickly as possible. Um, so for me, those more intuitive dashboards that give you the flexibility to really manipulate the data at that high end, like I think, say, that's the thing with with GMs, technical directors. I don't need to be an expert and I don't need to see all the 
the mechanics behind the data and the ugly end of it. Um, just having that visualization and, and the access to the, the key points is, is most important. Um, I could talk all day in terms of the actual metrics um, that, that we use. And again, I think it's specific to the, the end user um, in terms of how much you present and how much depth you go into and the kind of metrics that, that are important. Um, but again, for me, it comes back to almost being able to access everything, but then manipulate it how you need to at that given time. Brilliant. Thank you, Lucian. You'll be given ad ideas for new panels. So you'll be, you'll be delighted. <laughs> oh, I could talk all day on it. <laughs> We've talked about recruitment quite a bit. And I don't, I don't think we can ever shy away from it. I just think it's the, one of the finding the best talent is just a key part of the role. But I guess from a, a player perspective, player recruitment perspective, and I'm going to come to you, Fergal, um, Undoubtedly, it's critical. So how does recruitment make use of this MDT approach and what's been your experience as both a, maybe as a part of the team, as a low manager, but also then overseeing it as a, a sporting director, which is two un, unique insights? For me, it's growing and growing. Um, I think traditionally we used to assess a player from a tactic, technical point of view, a tactical point of view. But the element the MDT can add is, is the physical and the mental. I think we're we're quite far down the line in terms of physical assessment of a player. Now we've got all the physical reports. We can get our sports scientists to assess the player from a from a volume, from a speed point of view, from an output area. Um, we get the physios involved to assess the risks. So I think that's pretty much there. I think the area that we still need to get better in is the mental side. And, and it's always a challenge because it's often the first time you might meet a player meet a player face to face is when he walks through the building to sign. Some sometimes that's that's too late. I think in any other walk of life, any other business, you have assessment days, you go for two or three interviews, you get to know the person, and then you make a decision. Um, so I think it's an area that the MDTs can certainly help more when it comes to the mental side. But it's 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 definitely evolving and it, and it's such a useful tool as well to sign a player. That there's not one that we would bring in without asking opinions across the club um, from from areas of expertise that, that I'm not an expert in. Now, Billings, it might be interesting to come back to that and, and when we look at things for the future around actually what would you really love to, what would you really like to know on a player before they actually come in and what's missing in that in that process from your perspective? Um, Gus, from your perspective, I know how much work you do within the member association to find and identify Welsh players but when you found them in terms of that broader recruitment and pathway process what does that look like for you and a multidisciplinary approaches to making sure that's effective i think from our perspective as a national federation what we try and deploy is that every age group has the same resource as what the senior team has be it male or female uh, and that in, incorporates a complete multidisciplinary team if you like um, it's understanding that first contact with a player, going back to Fergus' point about the, the psychological aspect of the uh, of the player. From a federation point of view, obviously you've got access and a, and a little bit more time because you're not as much of a threat. You're more of a, an organisation that's going to create opportunities and open door to international football. And there's more of a willingness and a more of a desire to share information than there is at, at club level. So that access in itself, we've just employed now a head of um, psychology across all our um, age groups. 
uh, and that gentleman's remit is to actually explore more in terms of what we currently do outside of camp, inside of camp, getting to know the players, getting to know the families, getting to know the clubs, going back to the, the close people to them. But when they're in the camps, um, assessing them not from a not from a psychological perspective, but from their interaction with others on camp, if you like, from and assessing them from afar, just observing what they do, how they do it, what their what their peer group looks like, um, and ensuring, and that's and that's the key thing, is that every member of staff we know has got a key part to play, from the minibus driver the coach driver, as you alluded to before, to the to the first team coach, they all have a, a part to play. And that part is ensuring that the environment that that player comes into is one that's embracing, accommodating, warm and open and can provide healthy conflict. An environment where it's open, that you have no fear about raising your hand to ask a question, because ultimately, I think we all raise a hand to ask a question because... No, not only because we're curious, because we need to we need to have an answer. We've got a doubt on something, and irrespective of how small the question is in in our in our mind, we need to make sure that it's an environment where people can ask questions and they can have the answers. So, when they come in, they know they're coming into that type of environment, and when they go back into the clubs, we know they want to come back into our national setup, and that's the feedback feedback we have. But it'll certainly be interesting to see the work now being carried out by the head of psychology when he starts his work. Uh, in essence, in the next few weeks, when the international window is open. And um, thank, thank you, Gus. Anything to add, to that, Lucy? Um, yeah, I'll just add. I think from my side, especially in America, um, I think one of the really important kind of people in this is is a player liaison or player kind of care person who um really you know has to ensure that smooth transition for the player um you know here you can get traded it you know without knowing as a player um and you're told that okay you've got to move halfway across from east coast to west coast you've got half move halfway across the, the country today and so i think Really, that becomes, and again, it's the first person that the, that the player might contact to have contact with at the club and ensuring a smooth transition for them and their family and making sure that everything is set up in terms of the small things like flights and transportation and who's going to get you, but then housing and and the kids, the schools for kids and all of that kind of stuff, immigration. Um, you have to put all of those departments and all those people together um, to make sure that that the player just has as smooth a ride as possible and can focus when he arrives on playing football. And so for me, like the, the player liaison role over here is, is really critical for that, especially when it's a an in-market trade um, because they, they happen instantly. Um, the, the player often has no knowledge of the fact that he's going wherever he's going. Um, so that's really important. And then um, I think also just from a, a slightly different perspective in terms of recruitment is actually acquiring the player and and kind of like tempting them to your club is working with with the business ops again to kind of produce content and material to to kind of present your club to a player um and i think that's become more important and especially for you know for for clubs that don't have a, a big name or an established brand where you know they can rely on that i think tapping into the skills of of 
you know, those those guys on the business ops who are able to really produce fantastic content to make your club see them appealing um, as is really put in a, a really important part of the recruitment process. Brilliant. Thank you, Lucy. What are the main challenges you face today when it comes to recruitment? And Alan, if we start off with you, please. I think there are, there are three, Dan, in my opinion. I think um, specifically talking about the women's football um, transfer market in terms of player acquisition, it's increasingly competitive. The costs are increasing significantly. And by that, I mean player wage expectation, transfer fee expectation, and agent expectation and then the final one of my three is the governing body endorsement requirements to get players from overseas uh, coming into the UK and getting them governing body endorsement so there would be the three challenges that I would uh, would would, ha- would highlight Dan. Brilliant and Gareth? Yeah I think um, I think we've we've spoken around um, data I think obviously access to data is it's great, um, but it um, it also raises the performance levels of of, of your rivals as well, uh, and probably opens up into a global market um, where you know you weren't just competing with some some local clubs or clubs in in, in your own country. Um, you're now competing against a global marketplace, um, so that becomes a real challenge. Um, and I think as well with with data. Um, it, it's made it's made players a lot smarter and agents a lot smarter in terms of predictive data, knowing where actually that player will develop best, where they'll probably hold their value best. Um, So one, it's a challenge, but also you can use it to your advantage. So Lucy spoke around, you know, building packs to attract players into into your club. If you can show that actually they're going to build value by coming into your environment or actually you've got players that will interact and have good relationships on the pitch with that player based on the the data that we've had i think that that gives you an added advantage um the other thing that i wanted to sort of touch on was just around um geographical location now obviously we've spoken a little bit about um about brexit and some of the challenges around that but geographical location at some of the clubs that that i've been based at has been a real challenge you know what you know say say like, like you know oh the player likes the club but actually, his wife and children are going, we're not living there. Um, and I've, I've got it at the moment with some work I'm doing with the League Two club, who um, I think actually have got a really good um, performance model in place. Um, they're ambitious. I think they tell a really good story about, about the football club. However, there's a less attraction in terms of where they're geographically located. Um, and you're not just dealing with the player. You, you're dealing with the wider context of family, um, so I think the I think the geographical location actually plays quite a big part. And Fergal, yeah, for, for me, having been new into a club, I think it's getting the scouts in particular to understand the profiles of players that we're we're trying to recruit, and, and being absolutely clear on on the style of play that we're going to adopt and what and what type of players fits into that. Second bit is probably time for me just to watch the players, whether that whether that's live and videos, because there's always someone knocking on the door and there's always some challenge. And that video that I needed to watch always gets put into 10, 11 o'clock at night. And, and then the next bit is wage expectations. Um, we're, we're, we're working in a challenging market, um, but the expectations on player salaries are still quite big. 
Brilliant. And one of the, the recent observations around sporting directors and over sports leaders is that it's less about sourcing information because there's so much information out there, so much data out there, but more about what to do with it. So the question is, do you agree with this? And how do you see this as a challenge? And Lucy, if we go to you first. Yeah, 100% agree. Um, for me, it's all about understanding your data set, um, interpreting your data set, um, and evaluating it, evaluating it in the right way, um, and then communicating it um, in the right way based on your audience. Um, so I think you can have access to all the data in the world, but if you're not sure what it's, what its limitations are and what that means, um, then it's difficult to interpret. But again, how you then communicate that to someone who doesn't have a data background um, or who wants a specific piece of information really is the key. Um, and you know, I've worked with products where you can. I could present a player in one way or I could present a player in a very different way based on how I manipulate and evaluate and interpret the data. So um, it's it's key. It's, it's the fundamental and the next step, I think, of data analysis is really having people who understand it and communicate it in the right way. I mean, it's something I've, I always stress to, to, to data analysts who are trying to get in the game is really that. Um, make sure you know your data and make sure you know how to to communicate it at the right level to the right people. Brilliant, Lucy. And if I just extend that question uh, for you, Alan, but also add in what role tech plays within that within data and a recruitment process for you? Yeah, so if I take technology first, Dan, for me, technology is a really important technology is really important, but it's a part of a much wider process. And to agree 100 percent with what Lucy said. The priority is what you do with the data that you gather and how you're going to use it to give, and we know that it doesn't give certainty over any decisions, but if it, if you can utilise the data in the best possible way to give you the greatest level of comfort that you can get around a decision that you're about to make, that's the best utilisation of it. Excellent. And we just throw that one straight to you as well, Fergal. Yeah, I agree, agree completely with Alan. I think for me, it probably rubber stamps what we what we see from the player um it gives us a greater assurance that we're making the right decision i think the bit that i still struggle with and and haven't got an answer to yet is is what gus mentioned earlier the player that has got all the attributes but the data is not showing it because he's not in the team that play that way so until we can find those gems because ultimately everyone has the same data, so everyone's looking for the same players. But we've got to try and find that player that that nobody quite sees yet. But the data doesn't necessarily flag him up. Brilliant, and, and Gus. I know we've talked about this extensively personally, but where does it where does it fit with your where does the tech and data pl- fit in your recruitment process? All the way, all the way from the beginning of the process through to the very end when you present to the manager or to the head coach. Um, it determines obviously. A number of factors, you know, do they get onto the long list initially? And do they travel from there onto the short? And do they eventually end up on the target list? Um, that combined with um, you know, the subjective information that we have and also the, the viewings that we've undertaken from a live perspective uh, and video perspective. So it's a combination of all three, but it plays a critical role across the whole journey. Um, and certainly as you get deeper into the journey, the physical data becomes more prominent because the raw data, the events data, if you like, um, sits at the beginning of the journey. But uh, yeah, 
it plays a crucial part. Thank you, Gus. Now, thinking ahead, I'm going to come to you first, Gareth, because you've had different roles where you've been responsible for, for guiding and leading others, okay, particularly around the sporting director role. So, so looking ahead, what excites you about the future of the sporting director role and how it will evolve? Yeah, I think first and foremost, I think um, just the acceptance of that role um, now is, is is really important and obviously the value that's that, that's placed on it. But I think the bit that really excites me is, um, you know, in terms of a sustainable workforce for the future for the sporting director, we're, we're actually producing players um, that are uh, and, and knowledge heavy. Um, they, they understand data and how it works. They understand every aspect of their own development. Um, they understand team dynamics. Um, so actually, um, you know, in terms of what the future sporting director looks like, um, I think we'll have some. I think we'll have some really intelligent people um, coming through um, in the workforce. Um, so that 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 really excites me. Um, you know, I'm you know I, I may not be a part of it at that stage, but there's some. I think there's some really good, um, intelligent young players coming through in both the men's and the women's game that you can you can actually see when you know when they when they speak in uh, on the media. Um, that actually they've they've already got some real good understanding of what a future leader looks like in in the modern game. Excellent, and, and Gus. I think um, you know there was a lot of uh, skeptical people around when the analysts came through, when the sports scientists came through, and and Gareth, you just touched on it. The acceptance is there, and and the growth of that acceptance and the accountability and the responsibility that the sporting director has may see them uh, encounter more responsibility within the clubs, maybe the, 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 the level of accountability and responsibility within different levels of clubs, you know, will differ tremendously. Um, so exposure to more responsibility and accountability, and also potentially that assistant technical director, technical director or sporting director role, you know, opening up a pathway as opposed to people just becoming sporting directors, um, a pathway that enables them to start thinking post-career, which way am I going to go and how am I going to get there? And finally, will there ever be an aligned qualification to better prepare people, better equip people for to face the, the challenges that the game has, which is forever evolving, uh, and make them better placed to resolve those challenges in the future? Brilliant. And Fergal, anything to add to that? The biggest thing for me, Dan, is probably opportunity. I think if we, we look back a number of years, there were very few clubs had sporting directors in the UK. Um, that number has increased dramatically. We can see it right across Europe now. So, so there's going to be loads of, of more jobs available. And, and, and I think the, the job spec varies between, between roles. We call it sporting director, technical director, director of football. There's loads of different titles. Um, I think most people probably still judge it as a recruitment role, but there's a lot, a lot can be a lot more to the role as well. So I think because it's not defined in exactly what the role is, that will create opportunities for a lot of people with different skill sets. A great point, and I think we, I think we've done so much work on raising awareness, de- definition, and trying to remove some of that ambiguity. I think we're still in a, a massive period of trial and error where people are using it for different different uh, intentions and we've already seen some of the challenges sporting directors are facing right now it's a it's going to be a, a very interesting and exciting time uh, Alan coming to you 
What advice would you give to those listening who have aspirations to be a leader in sport in the future? I would say um, take time to build your network both inside and outside of the sport that you're either currently in or current or, or working towards getting into. And then my final advice would be expand your knowledge on the opinions of others and your own your knowledge of of the sporting environment through um, books and podcasts. And Lucy, um, yeah, for me, I would say um, it's a multidisciplinary multidisciplinary approach in that in that leadership position. So educate yourself and become versed across multiple departments um, in your chosen sport. Um, uh, I think that's one. And two, um, I think if you're in a club already, learn from the people who are in those roles. Um, what do you like as a member of staff? What don't you like? And how would you, um, how can you take lessons from that into, into that position if you were to go into it? But yeah, loved, um, loved the point there about listening to podcasts and um, using all the material available online because it's, it's, there's so much out there and especially about leadership and management and it's, it can be so insightful and useful. So would definitely jump on that as well. I think those messages about, would align with the ASD and, and Huddle and everyone who's been involved in this this panel is around this idea of investing in yourself, building relationships, innovation, and and also staying curious, which is definitely coming across from what you, what you said. And I think that, you know, we can all take that on board. From our perspective, I want to thank you guys as ASD members uh, for joining and sharing your insights because it's massive for us and it's massive for our partner, uh, Huddle, in terms of what, where this goes, I think it's quite exciting because I think the, the topics we've covered is going to raise lots of insight for the people who listen to it, but also raise lots of questions too, which I'm sure people will follow up directly with you. But thank you so much for your time and for sticking to time just about. Um, love it. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks, everybody. Uh, thanks, thanks, guys. Thank you. At Huddle, we have a 2025 vision to capture and bring value to every moment in sports. And we do this by combining our pro suite of hardware and software with our professional services, which are designed to connect strategy with the overarching direction of where a sporting organization is heading, specifically connected to the high performance workflows that you live every day. So whether you're a technical director, a coach, an analyst, working in scouting recruitment, or a sports scientist, or indeed a player, we very much got you covered. We hope you enjoyed this episode of Huddle Sees the Data. We look forward to seeing you in the next one. Hey, it's Andy from Zone 7. In the time it takes to read out this ad, our proprietary AI could have analyzed your training and game data, informed you which of your players were at increased risk of injury, and suggested how your staff could reduce that risk by simulating optimal workload strategies for the week ahead. If you want to find out more about how it does this, visit zone7.ai and click request a demo to start up a conversation. Now, back to the episode.